Welcome to episode 15, which I'm going to call The Gaps and Bulges of Biography. This podcast was uh, stimulated by a conversation I had with a fellow biographer who's working on a proposal uh, for a subject who uh, I shouldn't name since the proposal is not finished and the biographer may change his mind. But it's about someone uh, who was quite well-known, in fact, controversial, involved in really dramatic events in the first part of the subject's life, in the very first part, through the subject's 20s. And the subject is still alive. Uh, The subject has had a full life, but nothing to match that, in a sense, dramatic entry into public history. So what do you do with that? Someone who's been famous, say, in their 20s, and lives another 50 years or more, uh, and does nothing quite uh, to match that initial, as I say, entry into public life. The biographer was calling me for suggestions about how to handle this narrative problem. And before uh, I give you my answer, just to keep you in suspense, I'll talk a little bit about my own work And I'm going to begin with a book uh, that I thought I was going to write that I never wrote, which is a biography of Herman Melville. I had a contract for it. Um, It came too soon, though. That is, it came right after I finished my two-volume biography of William Faulkner. And I simply couldn't summon the concentration and um, the wherewithal to do another book on a, a massive writer. I did have an approach, though, um, that I want to talk about. Uh, and I guess you're free to steal now if you ever want to do a Melville biography. I may myself get to it someday, but certainly not within the next two or three years, and who knows how long I'll live after that. Uh, the Melville biography was stimulated by a similar kind of problem of, of uh, not all the parts of the life are equal. Um, how do you keep the reader's interest? This was at a bio conference, Biographers International Conference, in which the biographer John Madison was talking about how he wouldn't do a biography of Melville. Essentially, he was saying, what do you do after Moby Dick? That's a career high. Um, And you've got all these years afterwards where uh, Melville works in a custom house for 20 years in Manhattan and nothing much seems to happen. And I thought, well, that's a challenge for a biographer. What would I do in a case like that? And then when I was offered the possibility of working on Melville, my proposal actually uh, followed what I'm going to suggest to you now. Rather than begin at the beginning with Herman Melville, what I was going to do is I was going to talk about his move to New York City, where he grew up but had left, uh, his returning to New York City, after essentially the failure of Moby Dick, it wasn't a bestseller and it didn't garner the kind of attention he hoped, even though we regard it now as a masterpiece. And he led this fairly quiet life. In fact, the older Melville got, the less he wanted to have to do with people who were interested in his earlier career. What I was going to do, rather than lead up to this high point of creativity, Moby Dick, uh, and there is worthwhile work after Moby Dick, but not, again, nothing quite matches Uh, Moby Dick, what I was going to do is begin with Melville in New York. And I was going to engage the reader by describing where Melville lived on 26th Street and his walk to the Custom House and what 19th century New York was like 
And as I took you on this walk, I was also going to introduce you to the Melville family and what it was like for Melville to grow up in New York several decades earlier. And from there, weaving in the elements of his family uh, background, uh, I would eventually get back, of course, to the beginning of the biography. So that was sort of the basic approach I was going to take um, so that that part of the life, there wouldn't be any kind of falling off uh, immediately. A few other cases that I've had to deal with in my biographies, um, one with my uh, current subject, I say current because although the second volume of the William Faulkner biography will be published on September 25th, I can't let go of Faulkner. I've written seven, seven articles about him that have been published so far uh, in the last uh, th three, four months, and I'm working on another huge one in his novel, A Fable. Uh, and I've become fascinated with ha what happened to Faulkner uh, after what critics generally consider to be his greatest period, 1929 to 1942. One of his biographers, Judith Wittenberg, even says, and others to some extent do the same thing, they talk about after 1942, um, Faulkner's work is suffering a decline. I don't think, well, for a number of reasons, I don't think this is right. First of all, I think there are some novels, like A Fable, which I'm writing about now, uh, and The Mansion, especially, the third volume of the Snopes trilogy, and even The Reavers, his last novel, that have gotten short shrift and need to, to come into their own greatness, so to speak. So one of the things I was determined to do, especially in a two-volume biography, is I was going to say you get to 1942 and then the next 20 years, well, it's a decline. It wasn't a decline to Faulkner. He did from time to time think that his writing powers were waning. That's true. We can find letters in which he says that. But he refreshed himself in a number of different ways. Uh, and I thought it was important to treat each novel after 1942 with the same kind of concentration, not necessarily the same length, but the same concentration that Faulkner himself brought to those novels and why they were so important to him and thereby make them important to the reader. So I thought that was terribly important in a way to get over this idea. You don't have, why do you have to announce such a thing? Uh, draw the curtain down, so to speak, before the life is over. That just didn't make any sense to me. Another of my biographies, uh, Beautiful Exile, The Life of Martha Gellhorn. I wrote two biographies of Gellhorn. This is the second one. Uh, the first one was while she was alive. So in a sense, it wasn't an issue, uh, or rather the fact that she was alive and opposed to me became an issue and, and made the, the biography for me all that more interesting as an unauthorized biography. The second one, Beautiful Exile, was written shortly after she died with access to new archival material and additional interviews. But the interesting thing about Gellhorn is the most fascinating part of her life, I found, was growing up in St. Louis, for sure, but of course uh, covering the Spanish Civil War and World War II and even Vietnam. But after you get to Vietnam, she was born in 1908 and dies in 1998, 90, 90 years old uh, when she dies, 
After Vietnam, you've got a good 25-year stretch where she's basically located in London. She is still writing. She has friends. She's leading an interesting life. But it certainly doesn't match the life of adventure that she had up to and including World War II and then, as I say, Vietnam as well and, and some, some other wars that she covered. So what do you do with the last 25, 26 years? I did them in one chapter, which I called The Legend of Martha Gellhorn in which I talked about what she was like uh, in this post-Hemingway, post-World War II period, the kinds of friends she had, some of her writing. But it, it, it proceeds at a very brisk clip because I felt that to treat, in a sense, every year or every period in that last 25 years with the same kind of um, concentration and length that I had in the early part of the biography would would, would um, turn off a reader. After all, you're making a book. You're, you are writing about a life, but, but, a, li but a life in a book. Uh, one of the things that I, disappointed me about Caroline Moorhead's authorized biography of Martha Gellhorn was because she had access to uh, some material I didn't have, especially in Gellhorn's later years, she felt obligated to use that material. And some of that material, you know, Gellhorn is saying, life is kind of boring now. I don't have the same kind of excitement that I had before in the war years. Uh, and Moorhead felt obligated to um, cover that in too great a length, I, I think. I think it really damages her biography. Another example is Dana Andrews, the actor Dana Andrews, who uh, it took him up to almost the age of 35 to get a Hollywood contract. And he's in his mid to late 30s before he becomes a movie star. He has a big decade in the 1940s, big star. Uh, in Daisy Kenyon, for example, his name is above the title. That's always a mark of distinction in Hollywood. And it's even above Henry Fonda's name in Daisy Kenyon. But after 1950, again, there's a falling off and he dies in, in uh, 1992. Uh, some wonderful supporting roles, which I can write about. But again, I have to change my focus. Uh, I build into the biography at the beginning how important family was to him. He came from a large family and he had four children, but his own family, uh, brothers and sisters, uh, was much larger, 13. Some died in childbirth. He had several brothers and, and a sister. Um, it was how important family was and in a sense how he coped with a decline in stardom. In some ways, it was a relief for him after 1950 not to be the one to carry the film. And as a result, he turned in some really marvelous supporting roles. The other uh, thing I liked out is to find out how much his family loved him, how there wasn't a disenchantment, even given his failings, his alcoholism, what a wonderful father he was. This made the story really a story of redemption in the last years of his life which I think, to me, is quite thrilling. Okay, the gaps and bulges. Back to this figure who uh, gets tremendous press, is tremendously controversial, is very relevant actually right now to what's happening today. This person is still alive. What do you do? Uh, when the person leads a relatively quiet life after that first 25, 30 years uh, and is still alive, still engaged, politically active, for example. So there, in books, there are things to write about. You know, it's not that there's, there isn't any material. It's just that it doesn't come up to 
the kind of uh, drama that you get in the very first part of this subject slice. So what do you do? Well, I told this biographer who's thinking of writing about this figure about some of the things I've just told you, how I managed some of these things. Uh, I think partly I had uh, my other current book, The Last Days of Sylvia Plath, in mind. How do you tell the story, the last days? I'm really talking about the last seven months of her life. And some readers are surprised when they uh, read The Last Days of Sylvia Plath that it's about more than her last seven months. Um, it's because I use the last seven months. I follow them chronologically, but I keep breaking in. I keep going a little forward in the seven months and sometimes almost all the way back to her childhood to explain why she's behaving in the last seven months of her life. And I begin the biography with a sentence that probably no critic uh, will realize um, gives you the frame of the whole book. The first sentence is, in her last days, Sylvia Plath struggled to break out of a tightening cordon sanitaire that formed around the towering figure of her husband, Ted Hughes. In other words, she was trying to break out of something a kind of imprisonment. Uh, and I try to explain what that imprisonment is for her in an England uh, with the coldest uh, winter on record, with a husband who has all these friends willing to take care of him, her efforts to establish her own salon, her efforts to reach out to a world that is in many ways cold to her literally cold. This is a woman who was a sun worshiper and the cold meant uh, the kind of uh, maniacal cold that you get in uh, Game of Thrones, for example. Um, so I was using the opening sentence of the biography to set down a tone, a chord, a frame, a way of, I hope, uh, every other sentence and every other chapter in the book, in a sense, is a comment on. Back again to the subject uh, at hand, the unnamed subject. What do we do with this person whose first part of a life is so dramatic and then the rest doesn't quite match that thrill that the reader will get? What I suggested to this biographer was to don't tell the whole life at the beginning. Don't tell that dramatic incident. Maybe uh, allude to it, present the incident as it appeared in the headlines of newspapers and magazines and in other media. How uh, controversial and famous um, this person became uh, and present that person simply as the public figure, but not tell the whole story. Maybe plant a number of questions and then uh, deal, begin to deal with other aspects of this person's life, this person's background. And as you go through that background, begin to, ex to insert aspects of that dramatic story that play into the story of the rest of her life. That was my suggestion. That was my way of, of in a sense, breaking up the story to tell the whole story. Thanks for listening.